begin uh, planning for a super summer and our guest speakers. You know, many of the speakers that we try to have here um, take two years in advance to book, and so uh, we're always diligent and we're trying to find new faces and introduce you uh, to new friends uh, to Liberty Heights Church. But one constant every year is that we have Dr. Robert Smith. Uh, Dr. Rob, yes, isn't that right? Dr. Robert Smith is a friend of Liberty Heights Church. I first heard him, uh, I think, back in 2003 for the first time. And I spoke with him this morning, and I said, when did you start coming here? I found out that he actually has been here uh, longer than three pastors. So prior to Pastor Terry in 1996, he was part of the uh, interim uh, pulpit supply here, and he spoke for the first time in 96. And so he's been here 19 times before. Uh, pastor, or Dr. Smith is a pastor and a teacher. He's the divinity chairman at Beeson Divinity School uh, down south. But more than that, he is a preacher, and he loves to preach, and we love to listen to him when he's here. And so I know you're in a treat today uh, with Dr. Robert Smith. He has asked me this morning if I will introduce the passage of Scripture and read it to you this morning from Joshua chapter. Five. And so we're going to go old school today. We're going to ask you to stand as we read and honor the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading in Joshua chapter 5, first nine verses. I'll be reading this morning out of the New International Version. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted, and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gilbeath Harloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they had left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 7, so he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in the camp until they were healed. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. Well, would you welcome with me this morning Dr. Robert Smith. You may be seated. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. Speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God be praised. Yes, I celebrate today 20 years of being with my church family, the Liberty Heights family. There has not been one year in 20 years in which I have not had the privilege of being with you. That's particularly significant because today, July the 3rd, 
2016, I celebrate my 50th year of preaching. I preached my first sermon. I preached my first sermon when I was a teenager on July the 3rd, 1966. So God has providentially arranged on this day for me to celebrate two anniversaries. 50 years of preaching and 20 years of preaching to you. That's not by coincidence, that's not by accident, that's not by incident, it's by providence. Thank you so much for loving me, loving my wife, and allowing us to share with you during these three decades. I'm very grateful for the presence of my wife, Dr. Wanda Taylor Smith. I want you to see her. Uh, Stand up, baby, where are you, where are you? Amen. Hear me when I tell you, my life escalated, my ministry escalated when the Lord allowed me to marry her. That's a fact. She is really the human reason for Robert Smith in terms of ministry, really in terms of life. Yes, it comes from God, but... What I do, I do because of her prayers and her strength, her celebratory love, no nagging, no complaining. I don't have to come home to a long chin. When I'm traveling and I've been away for a while, I'm always there and there's an atmosphere there of love and appreciation. And so that means everything to me. And uh, I want to thank God for her and for her ministry, for her life, for allowing me to spend these 30 plus years with her in marriage. This is my beloved son, stand up Reverend Myron Ingram, in whom I'm well pleased. This is the one who, if necessary, will go to the ends of the earth, even to the grave with me. Uh, He is my Jonathan. Our hearts are knit together. I'm his David. And I want you to know, for you to be here today uh, is another memory that's indelibly etched on the canvas of my mind. So thank you so much for your presence. I want to talk about the cutting edge, the cutting edge. My brother has read the text. Let me proceed. Joshua 5 is sandwiched in between Joshua 4 and Joshua 6. Joshua 4, the crossing over of the Jordan River, when God opens up the Jordan River and stops it and allows the people of God to cross over on dry ground. Chapter 6, God bringing down the walls of Jericho after 13 revolutions around it without a crane or bulldozer. Success, chapter 4. Success, chapter 6. In between crossing and conquering, God brings the children of Israel to chapter 5. It is where God has ordered their steps in chapter 4 and will order them in chapter 6, but now orders their stops in chapter 5. It's time now for circumcision. This is the interlude. We love four, crossing over, 
to the other side. They've been waiting 40 years to do this. We love chapter 6, where God will bring down the massive walls of Jericho. Walls that were so massive that the ancient Jewish historian Josephus would say that two chariots could ride side by side and not fall over on either side of the wall. And yet God brings them over, and the Bible says in Joshua 6 and 20, the walls fall down flat. That's catastrophic. Fall down flat, not because of an earthquake, but because of the power of God. But nothing happens seemingly in chapter 4. On your march, get ready, set, wait. So inconvenient. We on the move. We have momentum. Look what we've done. Two million people have crossed over the Jordan River. And now we're in Gilgal and we are poised and positioned to be victorious against Jericho. And God says, wait. It's time for circumcision. We don't like five because that's a pause. We don't like five because that's a parenthesis. It's inert, it's inactive, nothing is going on. We are people of great activity. And yet God knows that chapter five is necessary because it's time for us to experience preparation. Got to get prepared for chapter six. Chapter 5 is a time when we have got to stop and reflect on the success we've had in 4 crossing over and the success that we are anticipating having in chapter 6 conquering. Now it's time for preparation. We go from storm to storm. And in the middle, God is preparing us for the upcoming storm. Some of us have just come out of a storm. And we come to the parenthesis, the pause, where God is preparing us to go to another storm. It's time for contemplation. It's time for meditation. It's time for us to reflect and to anticipate on what God has done and what God is going to do. Chapter 5 is necessary. Some of us right now are in chapter 5. We've experienced great celebration, great success, Great excitement in chapter four. We've crossed over. And then God knows that a storm is breaking and we are experiencing a crisis right now. And God says, I want to prepare you for the breakthrough in chapter six. I know you've had a breakdown, but the breakthrough is coming up and you've got to pause. It's time for the interlude. It's time for me to get you ready for what I'm preparing for you. Prayer is not influencing God, as Soren Kierkegaard would say, but God is changed, but prayer is changing us so that we are prepared for what God is going to change. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, it's laying hold to God's willingness. And so God brings us to chapter five to prepare us for the breakthrough as a result of the breakdown that we may have experienced. 
dried up rivers and melted hearts. That's how verse 1 starts in chapter 5. This is the report. This is the attitude. This, this represents the news that the people of Jericho have received as a result of what God has done, not only in Jericho, but throughout Canaan. They know the history of Israel. In fact, Rahab talks about it in chapter 2 of Joshua in verse number 11. When she's given one of the great testimonies in all of Scripture about the sovereignty of God, that is, that God is in charge. And thank you so much, Brother Pastor, for mentioning that. Remember that the United States of America and all the world, this is our Father's world. And remember that God is sovereign. Regardless of who's elected, God is sovereign. So be not dismayed, whatever happens, know that God is in control. God is not in New York City and has not left a farting address. God is still on the throne. And he's the God who never needs to be nominated. He's a God who cannot be elected, and he's a God that will not be impeached. You don't need to say he's still on the throne. He's on the throne because there's nowhere else for him to be. God is our King of kings and our Lord of lords. Dried up rivers and melted hearts. In chapter 2, verse number 11, Rahab, the prostitute, the madame in Jericho, says that God is the God of heaven and the God on earth. And she tells these spies, this is the God who has caused the hearts of the people of Jericho to be melted so that they are without strength. In other words, we are scared stiff. We are scared to death because we've heard what your God has done. The name Israel means God fights. And throughout the book of Joshua, there is this uninterrupted thread that runs throughout the fabric of the book that speaks of God fighting for Israel. God fights. Rahab rehearses their history because faith comes by hearing, Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God. She's heard what God did to the Amorite kings, Og and, and Sihon, how he defeated them for Israel in the wilderness. She's heard how God has opened up the Red Sea and caused the watery walls to stand in attention as the children of Israel marched by and through on dry ground. She's heard how God has defeated their kings and how God has cooked bread from heaven's kitchen for 40 long days, 40 long years, so that they had food to eat. They called it, what is this? Manna. She's heard about all of that. And as a result, she says, our hearts are melted. We have no spirit. We have no courage left in us. Wow. Then it's time to take the city, right? No. Wait. Circumcision. And so chapter 5 opens up by saying, with this extra metaphor, not only were the rivers dried up, but also their hearts were melted. Melted like the snow-capped mountain of Hermon in the northernmost part of Israel. That mountain where Jesus was transfigured. That mountain that at times throughout the year would melt 
and water would be furnished for those in the vicinity. She's saying, and they're saying, our hearts are melted like that. And we have experienced, according to chapter 5, we have experienced watching the children of Israel cross over the Jordan River. And we wondered how were they going to do this because chapter 3 of Joshua verse 15 says that they crossed over during the harvest season, which was flood stage. What a time to cross over. Why not wait until the Jordan River subsides and is reduced because there are places you can cross over. I've been there several times, but God waited until the Jordan River was at flood stage for them to cross over. Because it's no more difficult for him for him to stop water that's about three feet high or to stop water that's about 100 feet high. Doesn't make any difference. God is the God of the universe. And their hearts, again, the conclusion is, their hearts have no courage left in them. This is not like what God said to Joshua In Joshua chapter 1, verse 6, verse 7, and verse number 9, God says, and anytime God says something twice, it's very important. In fact, anytime God says something once, it's very important. But when God says something three times, it's really, really important. It's a Trinitarian importance. God says, be strong and of good courage, verse 6 of chapter 1 of Joshua. Be strong and of good courage, chapter 1, verse 7 of Joshua. Be strong and of good courage, chapter 1, verse number 9. But these individuals have no courage left because they've seen what God has done. This is totally unlike what David will say in Psalm 27. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And these individuals in Jericho have no courage They've seen about 2 million people cross over the Jordan River, and as a result of that, their hearts melt like snow that was once ice that is now reduced to liquid. They have no courage. And God tells Joshua, it's time to circumcise the people. They haven't been circumcised for the entire 40 years of the wilderness journey. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, verses 1 and following, God says to Abram, his non-covenantal name, leave your family, leave your acquaintances, leave your country, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And he says, I'm going to give you a great name, a great land, and a great posterity. And out of your family, that will be as multitudinous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there will come a seed, not seeds, but seeds singularly, singularly, which points to Jesus Christ himself, who will come out of Abraham, for he is the seed of Abraham. God promised this to Abraham before Abraham did anything. In fact, Abraham was a polytheist. That is, he was an individual who worshipped many gods. He comes from Ur of the Chaldees. His father worshipped other gods. His brothers and he worshipped other gods. And yet God takes and isolates him, calls him out, and will make him Abram, the exalted father, and then Abraham, the father of the multitude, and he hadn't done anything to deserve it. It's a call by grace. We don't choose God. God 
chooses us. You are not important because of some intrinsic value in you. I know you're made in the image of God, but I'm talking about eternally, salvifically important. You're not important because of who you are individually. You're important because God has chosen you. I know it's a doctrine that people fight about, but it's election by grace. God has chosen you, and you and I don't have a thing to do with it in terms of what we've earned. Do you understand that grace goes without earning, but it does not go without effort? It goes without earning. You don't earn grace. If you earn grace, it's not grace. Grace, as mama would say, is getting something from God for nothing. But it doesn't go without effort because once God has given you grace, it propels you, it compels you, it motivates you to live for him, to work for him. You're not working for salvation. You're working from salvation. And because you have been saved, as a result of that, you work for him. Works do not produce salvation, but salvation produces works. And God says, now, Abraham, I've called you. There's something you must do. You must leave your country. You must leave your kindred. You must leave your acquaintances and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And Hebrews chapter 11 reminds us Abraham is obedient because he looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. And God will say to Abram in chapter 17, verse 17, Abram, it's time for you, since I'm going to make your covenant name Abraham, it's time for you to circumcise yourself. You're 99 years of age. Ouch. It's time for you to circumcise your son Ishmael. It's time for you to circumcise all of the males in your family because circumcision is a sign that you are in the community of God, that you belong to me. It's an external sign of a relational reality that you are in relationship with me. And any uncircumcised male, according to Genesis 17 and 14, was cut off and could not live within the community of Israel. Well, sure enough, Abram does this. And the people of God are circumcised. God's so serious about circumcision that he is about to kill Moses who had not circumcised his sons according to Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 to 26. God is serious about a visible token and emblem of being in relationship with him. Spiritually speaking, brothers and sisters, we are spiritually circumcised. That's what Paul meant when he says in Romans 2.29, be circumcised in the heart by the Spirit. You can't do it yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't perfect yourself. You cannot make yourself a child of God. It's the Spirit who takes the sword of the Spirit which is, Hebrews 4.12, the word of God who cuts us out in order to graft us in so that we are members of the body of Christ. It's our birth certificate. It's our birthmark. It's what Jesus was talking about when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
And God says to Joshua, tell the people on your march, get ready, set, wait. It's time for painful, inconvenient circumcision. It's to be done with flint knives. Notice the text, flint knives. This is not the age of stone. This is the iron age. Why don't they use iron? Why use flints? It goes all the way back to what Abram used and what Moses, his wife, Zipporah, in Exodus 4, 24 to 26, will use flint so that there can be continuity between the past and the present. And there needs to be some continuity. We just lost a great man, Eli Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor, Nobel Peace Prize winner, who oftentimes was asked about the Holocaust and what he thought about it and what uh, should be said in terms of perpetuating uh, the memory of it. And he says, uh, when it comes to Holocaust, we should not talk about it. We should just tell the story. Keep telling the story so people will never forget the atrocities and the massacre that took place during those times so that there can be continuity. I think that even in the church, there has to be a sense of continuity. I love contemporaneity, but I also love tradition that is significant so that people don't get amnesia. I need to hear every now and then, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Need to hear every now and then, take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me on. Joseph said, look, I know that we're not going to always stay down here in Egypt. And since I know we're not going to stay down here and that God is going to take us back to the land, when you leave Egypt, take my bones with you and bury them in Shechem because that's where God is leading us. Traditionalism, according to Yaroslav Pelikan, the Slavic philosophy of Yale University, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. But tradition is the living faith of the dead. And there are some things we cannot take and jettison and throw overboard the cross. Some churches have gotten to the place that the cross is something you don't mention any longer because they don't want a bloody Messiah. Mm. Uh, that's too messy. They want a nice antiseptic society, savior. Uh, but uh, you can't spell Messiah without spelling mess. It's mess. He came to get us out of mess. And they shall call his name Jesus, Matthew 1, 21, because he's come to save his people from their sin. And uh, there is no salvation without the cross. We can moder modernize it all we want. You don't need to adjust the Bible. Just trust the Bible. Let it stay the way it is. It doesn't need fixing. We need to keep, keep talking about the cross. We need to keep talking about the Lord's Supper. We need to talk about the resurrection. I know a pastor up in Nebraska who can no longer talk about the resurrection with integrity. He says, because it doesn't make sense. You're 100% right. It doesn't make sense. God is not logical. He's super logical. He's beyond what you can think. Therefore, I praise him because there's mystery in preaching that he died one Friday, but got up one Sunday morning and you've sung a, a Bill Gaither song. So I add one more because he lives. I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future 
their life is worth living because he lives. Continuity needs to be maintained so that youth and age can run together and youth can appreciate the history of the aged and the aged can appreciate the innovation of the youth so that they're not antithetical. They are commensurate, they're compatible, they're complementary. The Bible says that God told Joshua, tell the men that they are to be circumcised with flint knives. They have had a great victory in crossing over the Jordan River and they are poised and postured and positioned for victory at Jericho and God says, it's time for them to wait and be circumcised. Why? Because God wants to teach them this, that you will need to be circumcised and experience weakness in order to know that strength can only be found in me. You will need to experience weakness so that you will know that strength can only be found in me. In other words, it's a paradoxical statement. There is strength in weakness. It's only when we're weak do we recognize more fully the strength of God. A paradox occurs when two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. When two mutually exclusive statements meet at the intersection of apparent contradiction only to produce truth. Where two things that seemingly exclude and negate each other meet there and produce truth. It's what the celebrated uh, theologian, Roman Catholic theologian, says to us in terms of paradox. He says, a paradox is when truth is standing on his head, screaming for attention, saying, come closer. I know this looks ridiculous. I know this doesn't look like it make any sense, makes any sense, but come closer. Let me teach you something. And Jesus will take off from that and say, if you really want to follow me, you got to follow me paradoxically. You want to follow me? Then you've got to die in order to live. You want to follow me? Then the, la- the first has to be last and the last has to be first. You want to follow me? then you've got to lose your life in order to find your life. You want to follow me? Then you have to be humbled before you'll be exalted. You want to follow me? You've got to sit at the end of the table before you are uplifted and escalated to go to the head of the table. And Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 12, verse number 10. I glory in my weaknesses in my hindrances, in my insults, in my persecutions, in my difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Chapter five is a chapter for us to admit and come to grips with our weakness. Some of us are not weak enough to be strong. We put too much stock in our own sustenance our own intelligence, our own financial security, our own robust body. No, 
God is calling upon people who can and will admit, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Are you weak enough? Am I weak enough to recognize that strength in finality can only be found in God? God says, it's time for circumcision. Do you know what circumcision does? Not just in terms of bringing about pain in an individual, but in terms about bringing about immobility, inertia, and weakness in an individual. Chapter 34 of the book of Genesis. There Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, he had 12 sons, and he has a daughter by the name of Dinah. She's out in the field with her maidens, with her girlfriends. And a young man by the name of Hamor, whose father is named Shechem, who is the father of the Shechemites, sees her. She is attractive. She's she uh, is inviting, and he rapes her. Of course, she's got 12 big brothers. That's a problem. And she reports this to her father, and the word spreads to the brothers, and uh, they're very upset. Shechem, the father of Hamar, and the father of all the Shechemites, comes to Jacob and wants to work things out with Jacob and says, our sons want your women to marry. And Shechem says, well... That's what we want. Will you give them to us? And Jacob says, after being in counsel with his sons, no, our women will not marry uncircumcised men. Your men will have to be circumcised first. The men are circumcised. And the Bible says, after three days of weakness on their part, Levi and Simeon take and exterminate, wipe out, all of the male population of the Shechemites because they've been circumcised and they're too weak to defend themselves and too weak to fight. You know what God is saying to the children of Israel? That's exactly how I want you to be. I'm going to put you in a position where you can't defend yourself. But Lord, their hearts are melted like waters. They have no courage in themselves. But God said, no, you're not doing the fighting anyway. I'm fighting for you. I open up the rivers and I am the one who has and will get victory for you. You're going to be put in a position where you will say exactly like George Matheson, the British hymnist would say, Lord, I give myself to thee. Make me a captive and I shall be free. Take away my sword, and I shall conqueror be. Take away my sword, and I'll conqueror be? Hmm, what does that mean? If I have no sword, Lord, how am I going to fight? Hmm. Then how can I conquer without a sword? That's it. You conquer without a sword, without a weapon, and when you conquer, you recognize it was not you who did it. I fought for you, and you had nothing to fight for yourself with. God maybe, be, maybe is up to putting us in a position where we become weaponless and swordless and techniques and our ingenious plans 
are thrown out the window and we finally put ourselves in a position and we just say to God, it's yours. Throw up your hand and just say, Lord, have your way. I am unable, you are able. And I know that's not the way we like to be because we are pragmatic people. We like things to work out based upon what we do. But God may be bringing some of us to a place where we just admit that we are not able, but he is able. Son of man, can these bones live? Ezekiel didn't say in a presumptuous way, Lord, yes, they can. Mm -mm. He certainly didn't say no because that would have been too cynical. He simply said to God, Lord God, you know. And God has brought these people to a place where they will not be able to defend themselves nor to fight, and yet they will be victorious because God will fight for them. In the 23rd century B.C., at least three centuries before Abraham would come on the scene, the Egyptians and other countries were circumcising their males. So this is not something that's original with Israel. Circumcision was taking place prior to Abram, but it was not real circumcision. The Egyptians would take and circumscribe, not circumcise, but circumscribe their males, which meant that they would take the foreskin of the male genitalia and take and slit it and cut around it, but not cut it off. Circumcision is removal. It's cutting off. It's not cutting around. We like, if we have to have one of the two, we prefer circumscription. Circumscribe. Cut around. Don't cut off. Not, don't want to lose certain things. See, we, 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 we don't, if we have to, we'll be Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And God says to Saul through Samuel, kill everything uh, that the Amalekites have. Kill, kill every Amalekite with his king. Kill all the people. Uh, kill all the animals. And Saul saves the best of the livestock for what he calls the sacrifice of the Lord. And the Lord will have to say to him through Samuel in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 15 uh, that God uh, would rather have obedience than to have sacrifice. Because the truth of the matter is, we don't mind if we have to. We don't mind being circumscribed. We just don't want to be circumcised. Certain things we don't want cut off. We don't want to let certain things go. As Alexander White would say, Lord, I give myself to thee, and whatever I cannot give, I invite you to take certain things we don't want him to take. There are all of these rooms, Lord, you can have entry into. But this room says, do not disturb. Don't bother me there. That's my pet sin there. That's my pet um, temperament there. That's my pet attitude there. Lord, I just want to feel that way. Let me hold on to this. I'll do all the other things, but just let me have circumscription there, not circumcision. And I don't want to give it up. And God said, no, I've got to take the knife and it all has to go. And we sing so glibly, all to Jesus, 
I surrender. Listen to this. All to him I, not grudgingly, but freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence, daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. I submit to you that if you sing that one time, you need to sing it every day so that God is given permission since he's not a gate crasher or door breaker to tell him to have your way no matter how inconvenient and painful it may be that healing will come after the pain is over. God wants to circumcise us. Notice the Bible says that they will experience, verse 8, healing. They are to stay in the camp until they are healed. Until. How long is until? Until. That's a long time to undergo pain. Do you know what it's like to wait until? I talked to the, the mother in the ministry that's in my life. Her name is Mrs. Gwendolyn Massey. My father in the ministry's name is Dr. James Earl Massey. On August the 4th of this year, they will be married 65 years. He's been preaching 70 years. And I was talking to her recently, and she was sharing with me what I already knew because I'd read about it in Dr. Massey's autobiography, aspects of my Christian pilgrimage. That they had had five, she had had five births, or if you will, five miscarriages. Five. They don't have any children. Five. And one individual asked her, why is it that God has permitted you to have all of these miscarriages and you don't have any children? Look how you could have really served the Lord with children. And she stopped her and said this, maybe that's the reason why I can serve the Lord the way I do now. And yet, she's experiencing healing. After each time, she's experiencing healing. Some of you know what it's like to really be hurt and disappointed and to have your confidence betrayed. And God said, stay in the camp until you're healed. Some of you know what it's like to be greatly disappointed by someone who is very close to you because people generally can't hurt you for a long time who are not in your bosom. It's only the people that you let get in your bosom, get in your heart, people who are deeply related to you. Those are the ones who will cause your heart to bleed and God says, healing takes time, stay in the camp until, verse eight, you are healed. I don't need to rehearse for you the deepest pain I've ever felt, and that is the pain of the loss of our son, Tony, through uh, murder, a useless killing, a robbery that failed, that did not gain for uh, the assailant one single cent. And, 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 and yet people ask me, what are you going to get over this? What are you going to come to a closure with this? I tell them, closure is for bank accounts. It's not for love accounts. And God has to keep on healing, keep on massaging my heart, keep on touching my soul 
when you experience pain, stay in the camp until you experience healing because healing takes time. Hear Job say in Job 23 verse 10, he, God, knows the way I take. Here it is. And after he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. After he's tried me, I shall come forth as gold. It's not getting out of trouble that really counts. It's what you get out of trouble that counts. What are we learning as a result of the trouble and the valley that we've been in? And we must learn that God is faithful not only as the bright morning star, but he's faithful as the lily that's in the valley and he will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and his staff will comfort you. Verse number nine. They are to stay in the camp that is located in the city of Gilgal. Gilgal is the first place that they were bed down in after they've crossed over the Jordan River and will be the place that they return, return to after their victories. Gilgal. Gilgal means the reproach. The shame has been rolled away. The shame has been rolled away. The shame of Egypt, the embarrassment of being slaves there for 400 years, it's rolled away. I make a distinction between shame and guilt. I know that there is not a consensus on this, but this is just where I am. And I'm also aware that all orthodoxy borders on heresy. So much so that if you are not willing to take a risk and only say those things that everybody else is going to agree with, you wind up saying nothing. I think there's a difference between, for the Christian, that which is shameful and that which brings us to guilt. It's good to have guilt as a Christian because guilt... It's when the Holy Spirit convicts us of what we have done. And you feel guilty. You've got a problem with any Christian whose conscience is seared and who does not feel bad about their sin and about what they've done to other people. There ought to be a sense of guilt because Jesus says in John 16, 7 through 9, when the Holy Spirit has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. One of the things that's lost in the church is that we have lost the sense of the awe of God and we've lost the sense of feeling repentant for what we have done. Mm. So guilt is good. If you are spiritually healthy, then you have a sense of guilt. I'm not talking about if you just take and rob a bank or something like that. I'm talking about impressions, thoughts that are not godly attitudes and temperaments and dispositions that the Holy Spirit checks you about so much so that you're always in tune with what he is saying in your life and therefore things that nobody else would ever know anything about the spirit is speaking to you and you have a sense of guilt and you ask God forgive me but shame does not have a place in the life of a Christian because shame is not feeling bad about what you've done. Shame is feeling bad about who you are. And you are not who you used to be. you got to come to the place where you've got to understand you've got a new identity. You've got a new destiny. You've got a new house 
The past is over. All of us are products of our past, but none of us ought to be prisoners of our past. The past is done. And therefore, God takes and rolls back the shame. Hear Paul say in Romans 8 and 1, therefore there's now, 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 no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Young people, if you are in Christ and you know he's made you his child and has forgiven you and your life is under new management, the shame is over. I don't care what you've done. Take and understand that he can't find it in his book. You've been forgiven. I know it's unbelievable, but we keep singing these songs. My sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. If you don't believe it, stop singing it. Understand the shame is over. When the Romans would crucify people on the cross, they would nail down on the cross, accusatory notes, things that they were guilty of. You know what Jesus does? The Bible says that our sins that were nailed to the cross, Jesus takes them upon himself. So much so, whatever your sin is, if it's pilfering, if our sin is lying, if our sin is murder, and Moses was a murderer and God forgave him and used him. Whatever our sin is, they are nailed to him and he takes them upon himself, and we can say that we are no longer shackled by heavy burden, neath the load of guilt and stain. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods, floods, not trickles, not sprinkles, but floods my soul. Something happened and now I know he touched me and made me whole. Stop looking up to see the bottom of your shoes. Understand who you are in Christ. You are a new creature. No, you're not perfect. That's not it. But what he's doing is sanctifying you. That is, he's setting you apart, conforming you so much so that you'll start looking more and more like him until one day, 1 John 3 and 2, it does not yet appear where we're going to be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. The devil will tell you about your past. Then you tell him about his future and the conversation is over. Your past is past. And now God has made you a new creature. The shame is rolled away. Jesus is all in this passage. He is the embodiment of circumcision. Because circumcision indicates a cutting off, a uh, removal, not a cutting around, not circumscription, but circumcision, a cutting off. And there on dead man's hill on Calvary, Jesus dies on the cross and is cut off. Don't you hear him say in Mark 15 and 34, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me a derelict? Why have you cut me off? He was cut off. He received no divine assistance from his father. The father could not 
assist him because he was bearing our sins. He was the sin bearer. And God, according to, Hebrew, according to Habakkuk 1.13, is a purer eyes to behold evil, can't even look at it. And the Father took and turned the lights out in the universe so that midday, 12 noon, looked like midnights from 12 to 3. Jesus is experiencing a cutting off from his Father because he who knew no sin mm, became sin that you and I who were sinners might be made the righteous of God, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He is circumcised. He is cut off. He is abandoned. But Gilgal is there on Sunday morning because it means that their reproach has been rolled away. And here are these women on their way to the tomb of Jesus on Sunday morning. They're going to look for the right person at the wrong address. And he will have his angels say to them, why are you seeking the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. No, salvation does not come from Gilgal. Salvation comes from Golgotha. And there on Golgotha, he dies. But thanks be to God, that Sunday morning, the stone was rolled away. And Jesus emerged from the tomb with all power in his hand. On that day, death died. He robbed the grave of his victory. He took the sting out of death. And so he made the grave for us a thoroughfare, a corridor, so that we pass through the grave. Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. I will rise again. I've got to go and do a eulogy on Tuesday of a little baby that lived less than one minute. The parents knew that the baby uh, was likely to die because the doctors told them several months prior that the baby would not have a body that was compatible to life. Problems with the brain, problems with the lungs, problems with uh, the liver, problems with the pancreas, etc. So they were expecting this time. But to talk with them, you know the one word that captivates them, that consumes them. It's a magnificent obsession. It's the word resurrection. Resurrection. Because it's one thing to say I believe in the resurrection. It's another thing to look in that hole and watch someone, Lord, there that you love who's a believer, then you have to believe in the resurrection. And one of these days, Jesus, who is resurrection and life, who has caused the stone to be rolled away, who has won victory, who has died on Golgotha, will come back again to receive us into himself. That where he is, we shall be also. Don't you want to be on the cutting edge? I know it's uncomfortable. Don't you want to be on the cutting edge? I know it's inconvenient. Don't you want to be on the cutting edge? I know it's weakening. But it is only when he has made us weak that we become strong. These men will not be able to eat, and I'm not able to deal with that, so I'm not going to treat that today. They will not be able to eat of the Passover in verses 10 to 12 of this chapter until they've been circumcised. That was important because the Passover was 
a everlasting ordinance. Well, the Passover is a precursor. It introduces, it anticipates the Lord's Supper because the Passover represents the fact that the death angel down in Egypt saw the blood that was sprinkled and splattered and splashed on the doorposts and lintels of the houses of the Israelites and the death angel passed over. And Jesus takes and has the Lord's Supper and wants the disciples to know, not only are you eating of the Passover, I am the Passover. And John the Baptist says, yes, he is. In John 1, 29, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And Jesus says at that last supper, I will not eat with you or drink of the vine until I do it in my Father's kingdom. One of these days, because we've been circumcised spiritually, one of these days, because we have sat down and sat with him in the spirit, one of these days, in the eschatological, that is, the futuristic moment of the kingdom. We'll come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will sit there and the bridegroom, our Christ, and the bride, the church, will sit and rejoice throughout ceaseless ages. Don't you want to be on the cutting edge? And God is speaking to you and to me continuously. Come to the table. Undergo the knife. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to make you inactive and immobile and inert. But there are some things that I have to cut off if I'm ever to move you to where you need to be relationally, spiritually, physically, maybe even financially. Come to the table. I wonder if there's anybody here who's ready to come to the table. You can't bear it any longer. You can't handle it any longer. You recognize it's too much for you and you're carrying all of this baggage and it is literally smothering you and almost interring or, or burying you. He says, come, come to the table. If you are not a Christian, that is, if you've never recognized that sin represents wages, that will send you into everlasting lostness, separation from God. The wages of sin is death eternally. If you never recognize that, that your sin was why Jesus came and he died for your sin. If you were the only person in the world, he would have died for you. You need to come and say to him, I confess my sin, I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. I repent. That is, I I offer to you my apology, my regret, and by your power, after cleansing me of my sin and residing in my life, I can turn and go a different direction from wickedness to righteousness, from despair to hope, from darkness to light. I want you to come. 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 Anyone here who wants to go under the knife to the point that you can leave this place saved a Christian and no longer bound, no longer lost. I want you to come. Since I'm not on a timer, that's what the pastor said. You're in chapter five. You've had a breakdown in four. Breakthrough is waiting you in six. 
And there are some things that no one needs to know anything about. And it may not be on you individually, but it's because you decided to be an intercessor, to get underneath the load and lift up someone else that's being destroyed, that's fallen, that's disintegrating. I want you to come. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. One of the problems I have as I travel the world is two problems. Number one, I can't find any sinners in the church. Number two, I can't find anybody in the church that needs prayer. I'm okay, you're okay, all of us okay, we're fine. And we have the pepsodent smile, we're smiling on the outside, but we're crying on the inside, and yet God admonishes us through James that we should pray one for another that we may be healed. I wonder if there's anybody here who has enough audacity, enough guts to come on your behalf, on the behalf of someone else so that we can pray. This is one of those items of continuity, things that we should not ever lose, that we are so sophisticated and so dignified and so well off that we don't want anyone to think there's anything that is errant in our lives, in our families. Everybody has the perfect family. Everybody has the perfect life. But if you're here today, as God speaks, I really mean this. I know there's nothing magical about this place, but there's something about the people of God coming together and praying together. I wonder if there's anybody else here. We're going to pray in just a moment. Someone who's been hurt. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you, but someone who's really, really been hurt and you haven't been healed yet. I want to encourage you to stay at Gilgal until you're healed. It's not enough to look healed you got to really be healed. And I know there's a lot there. Robert, you don't know. You're right, I don't know, but he knows. He knows some child, some sibling, some wife, some husband, some friend, or just maybe you. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my mother, not my father, but it's me, oh Lord standing in the need of her. Come on to the table. Come on, come on to the table. Come on to the table. Nobody needs to know why you came to the table. God wants to take and use the knife of the sword of the Spirit to cut away, to cut off mm, so that you can experience real healing. My brother, come on and sing that verse for me. I surrender all all to Jesus. Anybody else? Oh, Anybody else? Jesus. Anybody else? I surrender. Anybody else? Anybody else? Oh, Anybody else? to him. All I of us ought to be praying, even for those who are I will ever. I will ever love and trust him in his presence his presence God speaks today I will daily live what about it what about it oh I surrender oh yeah 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 I oh I surrender God speaks today oh 
stay in Gilgal until you heal. If it's next week, stay there. Even if it's next year, stay there. Until you feel the transforming, changing power of God. He may have to dislocate some things like he did Jacob's hip to give him a new name to transform him, but stay there until God has done his, his work. One more verse, son. One more verse. Oh, to Jesus I, I surrender humbly at his feet. His feet God speaks today. Oh, yes. Worldly pleasures. All forsaken. They are all forsaken. Take me, Jesus. Oh, take me now. Oh, I surrender. I pray, oh, God, you speak, you know. You know. Because you know that's enough. Give them what they need in order to arrive at the place that you've called them. In Jesus' name. Father, I pray for my brother and sister, and I pray, oh God, that you that you will undertake undergird, bear them over whatever they are praying about so that they can experience real victory. Not without scars, no. Not without difficulty, but real healing that will give them a greater testimony. They can say, it was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me on. Father, I pray. I pray today. Make me Savior. I pray for my sister. I pray that you'd undertake for her. I thank you for what you're doing in her life. She didn't even have to tell you. You knew before she knew. Would you, Lord Jesus, lift it? Would you, Lord Jesus, deliver? Would you, Lord Jesus, Would you, Lord Jesus, supply? I pray for my brother. I pray, oh God, that you will render unto him the desires of his heart as they meet your will. Give him what he needs to continue to trust you, knowing that you will never, ever, ever let him go. I pray for him. My blessing, Father, I pray for my brothers. I thank you for their presence. You know, you know their heart. You know their heart's desire. Master, you've told us, even though the Father knows what we're going to ask. I surrender all to you. We come now asking that you will supply their needs according to your riches and glory. In Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I thank you for our sisters. I ask even now that you will manifest your presence and that you will touch, that you will bring through, sustain as they go through what they're going through. We know that you are the one who provides the true way and you're the one who takes them all the way through. So I commit their prayer request to you in Jesus' name.